Good morning, church. My name is Tyler. I'm the discipleship pastor here at Westview, and welcome to our third week in Advent. Advent is a season where we pause and prepare. We pause from the crazy and the chaos that often precedes Christmas. And it's a season where we prepare our hearts. We prepare our hearts to more fully embrace the incarnation of Christ, his coming to earth, and the the significance of what that meant some 2,000 years ago, and what that still means for you and I today. Advent holds for many of us a special place in our hearts. And so this morning, as we come to our text, let's pray together for God to speak through these words of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Pray with me, church. Jesus, we do come this morning to pause and to prepare, to hear from you. We thank you for this Advent season, this time as we focus less on ourselves and more on you. Speak to us, challenge us from what you have to say today. And I pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Church, this morning, the first point I want us to look at is is setting the scene. We're in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. And before we jump into our passage this morning, I want to take us back a few verses in Luke 1 and help set the scene for us a little bit better. In verses 39 to 45, they, they help give us a bit clearer of the context of the song that Mary is soon to sing. In Luke 1, 39 to 45, we read this. At that time... Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. These verses tell the encounter between Mary and her cousin Elizabeth. For Luke, who's the author of this gospel, this encounter plays a great piece in the framework of this book. Here in this opening sequence, two major characters in his gospel kind of meet symbolically through their mothers, Jesus in the womb of Mary and John the Baptist in the womb of Elizabeth. Later in Luke's gospel, we'll begin to see the work of John the Baptist as he sets out to to fulfill this mission of his to, to point others towards Jesus. We read about that in John's gospel, chapter one, verses six to nine. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Yet here in this opening chapter of Luke's gospel, John already begins to live out his mission. He starts to point to Jesus even from the womb. This meeting between childbearers recalls perhaps something from Genesis 25. All this passage contrasts significantly with that one. 
You see, in Genesis 25, we read the story of Jacob and Esau as they battled for supremacy within a single womb. John, though, here rejoices at the superior role that Jesus possesses by leaping in Elizabeth's womb. As I was preparing for this message, I I read something startling in a commentary that I was looking at, and it's this. It's in an enticing omission. Our text never actually tells us how Elizabeth knew that Mary was expecting this child. Have you ever noticed that before? And so as our introductory verses draw to a close, verse 45 paints one more picture for us as we seek to understand all that is happening here in the life of Mary. She states this in verse 45. Blessed is she, that's Mary, who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Whereas Luke will develop these beatitudes further in chapter 6, these blessed are you's, This is, in fact, the first beatitude to appear here in his gospel. And so now as we enter our text, we see themes of of blessing, of fulfillment, of God enacting upon his promises towards his beloved children. It's a major theme of these two chapters of Luke that God does what he says. You see, when God steps into our lives, we should rejoice and trust that he will do what he has promised. So invite us, church, let's step now into the life of Mary and see how her song of praise still speaks to us. This song of praise is most commonly known as the Magnificat, which really is just Latin for the opening line of this song, which is, my soul magnifies the Lord. And here in this portion of Luke's gospel, Mary begins to pour out her heart towards her God. This first part really is this praise in the present in verses 46 to 50. Let's read those together. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. This hymn echoes a lot of the language from the Old Testament as Mary rejoices in the saving action of God on her behalf. Similar to what we read in Psalm 34, Psalm 69. But here in verse 48, we see that Mary will be honored or blessed from now on by all generations. But this isn't because she's special. You see, Mary, really, in terms of of who she was, was just an ordinary girl. Ordinary in terms of any societal status, at least. There is no sense of of nobility or, or prestige about her. She was just an average girl. But she is the model and representative of what it is to experience God's grace and God's mercy. Mary's feelings are clear that God owes her nothing while she has received everything from him. We read in verse 48, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. But it is this posture of servanthood that we see throughout the story of Mary. She is humble in heart and willing to do whatever the Lord has asked of her. And so it begs us to ask the question this morning, church, are we willing to do 
whatever it is that God asks of us? That's a big question, I think, for us to ask, but I think it's an important one in this season that we find ourselves in. Are we willing to do whatever it is that God asks of us, even when it seems utterly incomprehensible, even far-fetched or or possibly life-altering? You see, this is what's truly magnificent about the magnificent, that we recognize in it this deep theological truth that God's mercy extends to all who fear him. We read that in verse 50. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. You see, love and mercy and loyalty are these key interconnected attributes of God. Our God is all about rescuing those who are in need, who turn to him. And throughout this experience, Mary turns to God in deep humility and reverence for having been chosen by God for the role of bearing forth a son who would be the savior of the world. You see, church, I think it's important for us as we read this story and as we understand this season of Advent that we find ourselves in is this point here, that God does the extraordinary from the ordinary. Yet another beautiful theme that echoes throughout the scriptures. And perhaps you've seen this truth play out in your own journey of faith. Church, I'd encourage you this week to think about the times in your life, in your own faith journey, where you have seen God do the extraordinary from the ordinary. There's another cultural side note that I want to look at just for a quick moment here that kind of stands behind our text. You see, in ancient culture, virginity was an honored state. It was a, it was a badge of self-control and, and moral faithfulness. And see, Mary would have appeared to many to have conceived a child out of wedlock. And her explanation of a divine conception would have been a hard pill to swallow. And yet, see, our culture thinks differently. Our culture would see sexual experience before wedlock as as really almost a given. And so it's hard to truly appreciate in our text the walk of faith that Mary had to take and is being asked to take here. But far be it from her to worry about her reputation. What is most important to Mary in our text is the joy of serving God and being used by him to accomplish his plans. That's the heartbeat of Mary in this text. That it doesn't matter to her what others think. The rumors and the gossip and the the grumblings around. What Mary wants to focus on is what God is doing in and through her. And it's actually quite remarkable, the perspective that Mary takes through all of this. I don't know about you, but, but Christmas can oftentimes feel like a season where we feel great pressure. Pressure to like uphold our reputation. Maybe you're the one who's always known of having like the biggest and brightest Christmas light display on your home. Or maybe you're the one known for having the best decorated home that is just absolutely worthy of the gram. Or maybe you're the one who is known for giving the best gifts. That there's this pressure I feel in this season to to think inwardly, 
to become consumed with our own selves. But Mary, throughout all of this, doesn't. In fact, in the 10 verses of Mary's song, she mentions God 16 times and herself only twice. Mary helps us to recognize that Christmas is a season to focus on God and not on our own circumstances. And in no other year than 2020 is this more crucial for you and I to recognize. Look, I don't want to make light of the very real struggles that that people have faced during this past while. It has been a hard year. There's going to be great struggle this Christmas because we can't see family and friends. There's going to be a struggle to not have everyone around the dinner table for turkey dinner. There's going to be this struggle of some people perhaps pressuring you to do things beyond your comfort zone or or local restrictions. And no matter what the circumstances, restrictions, or shutdowns, this season is not about us. This season is about God. And Mary understood that. And so Mary's song now moves from her unique personal situation to how God treats certain groups in general. And in so doing, her message becomes not just her own, but that of millions of others. And through it all, Mary continues to praise her God. She declares in verse 49, For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. This third point I want us to look at is looking at this praise for the past looking at verses 51 and 56. Mary's song of praise now shifts into this reflection upon not just her past, but upon the past of all of God's people. Mary's song shines light upon the great and mighty work that the Lord has done generation after generation after generation. It's a reminder not just for her own sake, but also for us as a modern-day audience of what God has accomplished for his people, and really what the Old Testament was ultimately pointing towards, what the prophets prophesied about, what was anticipated by God's people, that there would be a day when a Savior would come. That which Isaiah 9-6 declares, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And what Luke records in the next chapter of this text. In Luke 2.11, we read, Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. But I want to encourage us now to look a little bit closer at a couple of verses in our text, in verses 51 to 52. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. You see, what we read here in verses 51 and 52 are really verses proclaiming God's power. The people of God throughout the Old Testament had seen and heard the great power of God Almighty. 
Mary here sings again of the great power of her God. And for centuries, God's chosen people had seen the power of his hand on display. You spend a few moments looking through the Old Testament in Israel's history, and you see these moments of God's power, the parting of the Red Sea, manna from heaven, Daniel in the lion's den, Jonah in the whale, even Balaam's talking donkey, and, and sometimes it's good not to read from the King James Version. Time and time again throughout the scriptures, we see the power of God on display. And yet there is this sense of irony here because what Israel expected from the coming Messiah would be one who would come with power and prestige and presence. The anticipation of the one who would come, who would come in power with this mighty right hand as they had seen from their God in the past. Yet this song of Mary reflects this upside-down kingdom, that subversive spirit that at least three times in history that has been banned from being sung in public. Three times in human history, this song has been banned because of this subversive spirit, because of, of fear that it would cause an uprising, because those in authority felt threatened by this song and its implications. And so Mary continues to sing. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent away the rich empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful. Again, these two verses serve to remind Mary and us of the caring nature of our God. Quite a different perspective, if you'd say, than perhaps what was anticipated of this prophesied king. Yet I think it's a reminder to us of what God truly desires for his people, for his children. I don't know much about you, but as I read this, I can't help but be reminded of, of what the prophet Micah said earlier in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. You see, the story of Jesus' incarnation is one of subversion, of things not always being as they seem. It's this upside-down kingdom. While many anticipated the coming Messiah to come in power, he was born a baby, lowly, in a manger, that he filled the hungry and sent the rich away, that he was remembering mercy, not wielding authority. It was not like anyone ever anticipated. But you see, God is a God who keeps his promises. And Luke especially emphasizes this theme in his gospel. And Mary's song reflects this as well in the final portion of the Magnificat. We read in verse 55 to 56, to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. Mary's final words are again a reflection upon God's great mercy towards Abraham and his descendants forever. 
that includes us. That God was then and continues to be active in the lives of his people. That he keeps his promises. We as believers must take God at his word and be amazed at his involvement with the details of our lives. We, like Mary, need to see that God desires to be to be intimately involved in our lives, to use us for great purposes, much like he did with her. So when we talk about preparing for Christmas, how did Mary prepare? Well, she sang. And I don't think I'm the only one who misses being able to sing together these familiar Christmas carols on a Sunday morning. I miss singing the songs where, where Reese usually invites me on stage and I get to jingle my car keys. I, I just long for that moment together. And I get, church, that it's awkward sometimes to sing at your television versus singing in person. But did you know that God sings? Have a quick look in the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah 3.17 says this, church, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. This word, singing, translates elsewhere in the Bible as shouts of joy or loud cries or, or rejoicing. Maybe Zephaniah isn't a book you've read much of. Maybe this is a verse you haven't even heard before. But it declares to us that our God is a God who sings, who rejoices over us with rejoicing, over his people, over you and over me. And here in our story, we see Mary's reaction to the work of God in her life. And so we sing, not just to, to sing songs, but as a means to declare the work of God in our lives. Now, Christmas carols might not always be actual and factual. I mean, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I mean, let's just get that out here. That's a bold-faced lie. There's no way he didn't cry. Have you ever met a baby that doesn't cry? Come on. But even if all the Christmas carols we sing aren't fully factual and true, we sing. Why? Well, I think we sing to remind ourselves what Christmas is all about. We sing, much like Mary, to declare God's work in and through our lives. We sing to declare his grace and his goodness. We sing to declare his power and his presence. Mary sang, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. I pray for all of us this Christmas season that our voices will sing loud and clear. That with our voices, we will make known the good news of Christ's coming. That we will sing because of the work of God in our lives and the difference that that makes still in and through us. Church, I want to encourage you this Advent season. 
let's sing. Let's rejoice. Let's magnify the Lord. Even in this season of disruption, of uncertainty, and of change, let us rejoice in Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Let me pray with us. Jesus, I do thank you for the story of Mary, for her desire to magnify you, not her own circumstances and situation, that her desire above everything else was to glorify you, God. And so I pray for us as a church that that would be our desire this Christmas season, that we would desire to glorify you despite our circumstances, that we would love you worship you, serve you, and adore you. I pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.